Have any of you ever wondered, after what we've already studied in the first letter written to the church at Corinth, which was very clearly a letter to a troubled church, why the Apostle Paul would spend so much time writing to this single church? And why would he write them a second letter? It's a question that's been debated throughout the centuries as people have read this second letter. Some have even debated that Paul even wrote it, someone claiming to be Paul. Um, I personally believe he did write it, and let me tell you why. If the enemy can't win from without, if the enemy can't convince the, those that are opposed to God, unbelievers, forces outside the church to get in and fight and try and destroy the work that God is doing, very often the next way and the most painful way that the enemy tries to thwart the work of God is actually from within the church itself. Tries to use believers, supposed believers, to to attack the church from within. We're not certain exactly what the actual problem is in this second letter because we're not told in detail what it is. But we are told that it's extremely personal to the Apostle Paul. That it hurts him personally, deeply. And so as we look at our introduction tonight to this second letter, you see a church that's gone through a time of trouble They've come out the other side of that trouble. There appears to be a group of people within the church that are doing well, but there also appears to be a group within the church that are actually now thwarting the work of God. You might call them the grumblers and the complainers. You might call them those that aren't satisfied with the direction of the church. You might call them those that aren't quite ready to get on board with the Apostle Paul, and so they're holding out for a different Jesus, a different word, and a different gospel. And so as we begin our introduction to this second letter, you have to look at the volume of material written to this one church. If you take the two letters and put them together, this is the largest body of work in the New Testament. And it gives you an idea of the importance of the church. It gives you an idea of the difficulties within this particular church. And it gives you a sense of the battle that the church will always be in until the Lord comes for us. Amen? Would you join me? We'll pray. We'll look at the first three verses. And then we'll spend some time in an introduction. Father, thank you for the amazing wisdom of your word that speaks to us even tonight, nearly 2,000 years later. And Lord, we can honestly say that some of these conditions and problems exist in this church. Some of the same things that face the church in Corinth face the church in South Bay. They face every church, any church, that chooses to rightly divide your word as truth, to teach and preach the real gospel, or to try and reach the lost, that church will come against some fights from the inside. And so, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen your church, 
that you would move powerfully amongst us tonight by your spirit. Lord, set us up to receive the rest of this letter. We bless you. We praise you. We ask you now to speak to us as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this appears to be one of the things that is troubling this church. That from within side, there are some who believe that the apostle Paul is not called. Not only is he not an apostle, he's not actually really supposed to be the pastor of the church. And so they put up an argument from within to try and tarnish his character. To destroy what is Paul's really only hope in this world as an apostle, which is to maintain his integrity. Very often when there's no substance to an argument, people begin to attack the integrity of people. They begin to go after that, which is their, uh, their, really their only thing that they can take with them from place to place. You may lose some knowledge here or there. You may lose some ability here or there. But your integrity should follow you everywhere you go, especially as a believer and especially as a pastor. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. You know, as I spent so many years teaching at the Bible college, you know, a lot of people go to Bible college believing it's a vocational school. They actually think if they go and complete a course of study and they end up with a degree and that's in a frame, that that automatically makes them a pastor. It does not. A pastor is a calling. It is to rightly divide the word of truth. It is to tend to the flock of God. And it is something that you cannot just simply learn as a skill. It is a position that God calls you to. The Apostle Paul here in the beginning of this letter makes it very clear. Uh, he didn't just go to school and he did not accept a position. Another misnomer that's often believed that if you have like a pastoral search committee or you do some of those things that uh, we would normally do in the business world, like everybody sends in their resume and you get a bunch of candidates and you have kind of a beauty contest that ultimately that will lead you automatically to the right person that it is actually a job search. It's not a job search. If the call of God is not on the man of God to pastor the church of God, then it's not God's church. It can be a business. It could even be a religious business. But the church of God is pastored by men of God who have been called by God. And Timothy, our brother, Timothy, this traveling companion, this young man, this understudy of the Apostle Paul, who Paul frequently and often refers to as his brother. Relationships that are built in ministry become very dear and very close, very similar to family. And in fact, in many ways, I am as close to those that I've ministered with over decades as I am to anyone else on the face of the earth because they've been there in the trenches. They've been there to pick up. They've been there to smack down. Uh, in case you didn't know, pastors every once in a while do need that. They need somebody willing to withstand them, to look them in the eye and say, Mm-mm, that's not the way you're supposed to go. They're like family, because family can do that too, amen? That's what brothers and sisters do. They're able to say what needs to be said in the moment that it needs to be said. 
Timothy, our brother, to the church of God. Every church is God's church. This church is not Jeff's church. This church is not just simply a Calvary Chapel. This church is God's church. And every church on this earth that is actually of the Lord is God's church. And in fact, I actually resent when people make the case that it's their church or my church. Now, there's a sense of truth to the fact that I have the privilege of pastoring this church, but the church that I pastor is God's church. He just lets me help. Paul understood that. And every pastor should understand that. The church is not a family business. The church is not a sole proprietorship. The church is and always will be God's church. God's pastors are called to pastor God's church. It is a privilege and it is a solemn responsibility to pastor God's church because God is going to hold pastors responsible for how they pastored his church. You are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. That's one of the craziest things about being in the pastorate is I'm also a sheep. I I still happen to be a sheep along with the rest of the sheep. I just happen to be a sheep dog amongst the sheep. I get an opportunity to, to shepherd the flock of God, but not as the chief shepherd and not as the good shepherd. There's one of those. His name is Jesus. I am an under shepherd. I'm one who takes my orders from somebody else. And I take very seriously pastoring his church because one day I'm going to have to give an answer for how I pastored his church and led his people and fed his flock. So important. Because if the church doesn't understand these things, then the church is looking for the wrong thing. And let me tell you what very often happens in church. Church starts looking for personalities. Church starts looking for the wrong thing. They begin to look for someone who will make them feel good about themselves. And we'll get to this in a little bit. The church of God should look for a man of God that will pastor the flock of God and teach the word of God because the church is God's. Amen? Don't let anybody convince you otherwise. Because if every time you come through these doors, you're comfortable, I am not doing my job. Because that means I've failed to teach the truth. Because if the truth doesn't touch you in an afflictive way occasionally, you're not getting the whole counsel of God. Because I can tell you what happens when I study it. I get whacked every once in a while. As a pastor, I go, ooh, I don't meet that criteria. I, I need to bone up on that one a little bit myself. Which is at Corinth. Why is that important? Because churches have an address. Because the people here in South Bay are not the people in South Orange County. The people that are in Eastern Africa are not the same as those that are being ministered to right now by Pastor Brian and a group of pastors that are down at a conference in Lima, Peru. 
Churches are defined by their address because there's always a cultural connection. There is always a personal connection. There is a communal connection. And there is a geographic connection with the church that is at Corinth. And so it's important for us to recognize as pastors that I am teaching the flock of God that is at Calvary Chapel South Bay. We're not the same as the church that is Rolling Hills Covenant. We are not the same as the church that is core church in downtown LA. Now we may have some similarities, but the reason the individual church exists within God's church, which is one, is because you are unique. We are unique as the body of Christ in our little big cluster of people. This wonderful thing that is called the church at Calvary Chapel South Bay is just like the church at Corinth. They had very specific needs. They had very specific understandings of certain doctrinal issues. They had very specific problems. They had very specific challenges. There are places in this country that you can go where the amount of diversity that they have in their church is zero. Where a cultural understanding of all of the wonderful flavors that we are in this church is completely unnecessary because they don't have it. Doesn't make them bad and us good or us good and them bad. It just means that we're different. And so the church that was at Corinth had some real issues. Some of them were cultural. Some of them were practical. And some of them were sin issues. With all the saints who were in Acacia. So now he mentions the larger area. And he's trying to paint a picture that we're all interconnected, amen? Amen. We're connected with the rest of the churches here in the South Bay. We're we're part of a bigger thing. We're not insular in that sense. We are unique to here, but we're not unique in the world because we're part of the great big church and we're part of a localized group of churches as well. And so he's giving us a picture of how every church ought to view itself. We need to see ourselves for who we are. We are important as an individual church. We're important in our community as a group of churches. We're important as a part of the greater body of Christ. And we are really important as the church of God in this world. That's the picture. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. As Paul opens this letter, he begins with what will be the the backbone of this entire letter. And he begins by giving us a sense that there's still some difficulty that exists in this church that after having written this very large first letter, a second follow-up letter is actually necessary, which you might think is problematic, but to me, it shows the depth of care that Paul has for the church. 
You know, one of the things that you get tired of as a pastor is dealing with problems. But I found what happens in my own life when I start to not want to deal with the things that need to be dealt with is I'm actually not loving the flock of God. That's a bit of a confession. Because it's a lot easier to ignore problems than it is to deal with them, especially if you deal with them in love. It is really easy to just simply get upset and angry. And in Paul's first letter, he basically lets them have it. Amen? He, he just like takes out the holy two by four, says, give me your head, like boom. Do you not know that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul's actually going to recognize in this letter that while that is true, you also have to be very careful with the flock of God, with the children of God, with God's church, because there is a time for you to get out the holy two by four, and there's also a time to wrap your arms around somebody and say, you know what, let's get through this together. Sometimes we need to correct, and sometimes we need comfort. Sometimes we need to say the tough thing, and sometimes we need to exercise mostly love. Sometimes those things are mixed, but very often the only way that you're going to know that is because you actually care. One of the ways that you can watch for a pastor that is doing his job is that he actually cares about what's going on with the sheep. It's one of the reasons I worry for pastors that don't spend time with the flock, that don't minister to the flock, that can't be found at the baptisms and the barbecues and hanging out with the sheep. That's part of knowing the flock of God. Paul knew the flock of God because he hung out with the sheep. One thing's for certain, this letter is deeply, deeply personal. Paul himself is going to be wounded. And so to Paul, he opens this letter with the God of all comfort. And we're going to see that radically as we get into the first part of this first chapter. Paul takes a rather circuitous route in this particular book. Uh, He makes some plans initially that we saw at the end of the first letter. And now he's basically going to say he's going to make a tour of of what we would call Asia. He's going he's to travel through Asia Minor. He's going to go through all of Greece and down across what is now Turkey, all the way to Jerusalem and all the way back again. And it's going to take a while. But there had been such a profound disturbance in the relationships that had been in the church at Corinth that I think Paul was doing something very, very, very wise. And that was he was giving time for the church itself to work some things out. I can tell you after a lot of years in ministry, many decades, that sometimes the only thing that you can do is give people some time to work some stuff out. And as the wise prophet Solomon said, in the echoing of many words, sin is not lacking. Sometimes saying more is not beneficial. Sometimes saying less is the best thing to do. And giving people an opportunity to just simply talk to each other and work through some details. 
And I believe that through the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul does that here in the second letter. He's actually going to take more time than he himself initially thought he would. And so he travels all the way through Macedonia, not once but twice on this particular journey. Macedonia being the northern part of Greece. So down where Corinth is, is in the very south. Macedonia is basically the other end of the country. Paul mentions this particular journey there in Acts chapter 19. He's going to remind us in chapter 2 that it was with much affliction and with many tears that he has to now write again. I have a saying that if you can't be hurt, you also can't be loved. And I think it's very true. If you can't open yourself up to be hurt, if you cannot expose your heart to where you can be wounded, then you have probably closed off your emotions in such a way that you don't feel things the way you should. And so I truly believe that it is sometimes pain that actually identifies real love for us. That when you agonize over things, when you genuinely care, when your heart is actually broken, that that is a clear sign that that particular situation or that person is meaningful to you. I worry about people who have zero emotion. Because I wonder one day whether they're just simply going to explode because you know something's in there. Or whether their heart has become so hardened to those things that they don't love the way they should. And while this is not universally true, and I want to be very careful, because some people just have a a bit less emotion than other people. But if you can't be hurt, if there isn't an occasional time where something really pierces your heart, I think the Bible tells us that we need to really check to see if we are in that spot to where we can really be loved. As you overview this second letter, there's some sorrow, there's some anxiety that that comes to to view for us, especially when we get to chapter 7. And I can tell you one of the hardest things that we pastors have to do is to correct people. Can I tell you it's really easy to baptize people? Really easy to do baby dedications. Really wonderful to do weddings. It's not so wonderful to do memorial services, but even sometimes those can be a a blessing. When the family knows the Lord and the person knew the Lord, you know they're rejoicing in heaven and you're doing a celebration of life and not you know, just simply remembering that they're gone. But when you have to correct someone you love, it is hard. It's not easy. It is the worst emotional experience I think that you can have apart from maybe death and divorce. Having to say tough things to people that you love is one of the most difficult things there is to do in ministry and in life. Because what normally happens is this. We get all worked up into a frenzy about some situation, some problem, and instead of taking time to lovingly correct, we just explode. Or we can wait so long that the necessary emotion to stir us to understanding that this is a serious thing, we let go by the wayside, and now we just 
mush over the thing and it's like it never happened. Paul is agonizing because he is going to have to correct now from a different perspective than in his first letter. He wanted to bring their hearts back to him. I can tell you because I've had to do this so many times in my ministry experience. There's a lot of times when you correct somebody, they're not exactly your buddy the next day. Matter of fact, they say all kinds of things that not only are not true, but their intent is to get even or to get a little bit ahead if they can. Humans do that. People do that. And unfortunately, even the church does that. And it appears in Paul's correction in the first letter, in the second letter, he is now suffering the consequences of being honest with them in the first letter. That because he cared enough to correct them, he's now being castigated. He's being gossiped about. He's being talked down about. They're actually questioning whether he is an apostle or not and whether he even has authority to pastor the church or not. Be careful when you get caught up in gossip, family. I don't know that there's anything that's more damaging internally in the church than gossip. It's one thing when people will look each other in the eye and directly talk to each other, and even if it's stern and unkind, at least it stays between them. But gossip is a poison. It has always been a poison. It continues to be a poison. And it erodes the very foundation of the work of God. Paul understands this. Titus, Paul's representative here to the church at Corinth, has been tasked with bringing this report And he's now gone, he's coming back, and he's basically checking on what happened with this first letter, which was severe. That also is not fun. Here in this church, we happen to have 16 pastors. And because of the size of the church, you can imagine that there's an awful lot of counseling that goes on, and a lot of weddings, and all kinds of hospital visits, and a ton of things that no one person could do. And so a lot of that we work together on. But I can tell you there are times that people come back to me and go, well, Pastor Rob said, or Pastor Pat said, you would have never talked to me like that. And I'm like, yes, I would. You're lucky it was them, not me. No, it's easy to, to try and find a way to say, well, you know, Titus was nicer. Timothy was nicer. Pastor Jeff was nicer, or Pastor Rob was nicer, or Pastor Josh was nicer, or Pastor Jimmy or Brandon, or whoever, Dave was nicer. They said, you know, if they'd have just done it, it'd have been okay. You know, the truth hurts sometimes. And it does not matter who brings that truth. It matters whether your heart is open to receive that truth or not. Because the word of God is true. And so the word of God was brought to the church and Titus goes and he basically gets an earful. Well, you're a pastor. Paul's going to have to deal with that. He's going to have to agonize over that. He's going to have to listen to the words of discouragement. Can I tell you, the church doesn't need a single person in it that has the gift of discouragement. So if you think that's a spiritual gift... It's not. 
I have the gift of gossip. Oh, yeah, well, I have the gift of slander. They kind of brag about it almost. It's like, oh, yeah, well, I said this and I said this. It's like, no. The church has not benefited by tearing itself down. And so please don't be a person who listens to gossip. When someone comes to you with a juicy story about somebody in this church, the first thing you should say is, can you wait a second? I'm going to go get him or her and you can tell them to their face. You want to know what will happen? Zip! All of a sudden they become a deaf mute. I am not, oh, I'm not going to tell them to their face. Don't get caught up in it. That's what happens in this church. People start yapping. It's a good way to get a spanking from the Lord. Now, it's true because we see it in chapter 7. The Corinthians got the message in the first letter. There's a ton of repentance going on. People are going the right way. Can I ask you to be patient with people who are in the process of repentance? Hear what I said well. Can I ask you to be patient with the people who are in the process of repentance? You see, instantaneous repentance happens for some people. For other people, it is a process. They're not quite there yet. And they're like 60% repentant and they're like 40% not. And you need to help them get 100% to repentance, complete repentance. To where there's no longer any residual. But very often what happens is people give up and then they become harsh to those people. And instead of lovingly helping them get all the way where they need to go, it's like, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm sick of it. I'm not going to go there anymore. Be patient. You need patience. I need patience. We all need patience. The last thing we need to do is start getting on each other's case. We have it tough enough from the world. Amen? Love each other. And to that end, what happens in this church is a whole bunch of false teachers kind of rise up. It's like the Apostle Paul's being slandered, and what you have is a whole long list of people like, I'll take his place. I'll teach next Sunday. I'll do whatever. Apostle Paul, man, he's out of here. It's like, we got a little mini rebellion going. It's like, he's done. And they'd come with a new gospel, a new line of reasoning and teaching and doctrine. And the sky had cleared temporarily over this church. And I say that metaphorically. They had seen a glimpse of the sun. You know those days when we have the the storms that blow in, especially when they come from the Gulf of Alaska and the clouds lower because they're cold and it's just black and gray? Now, we don't get really good storms here, but like if you're in Colorado or New Mexico or Arizona where the storms come up over the mountains and it just unleashes lightning and thunder and you're like... We don't get those, but we do get the ones where it just gets dark. You remember when the storm blows through and all of a sudden that first little poof of light opens up and it's been dark and dreary and raining and drizzly and though we kind of like that here because we see it so infrequently, but you know those days when the sun just bursts through the clouds? 
That's what happened at Corinth. The first letter had done its job. The sun's shining on them. They're getting it. They're like, yes, Lord. Those rays are beginning to shine on them. And then the hole closes up. And it gets dark for a different reason. Don't forget that the enemy's first place he attacks is where the Lord is doing the most work. He's not going to attack somebody that's already bound up in drugs and alcohol and in bad relationships and doing all kinds of stuff relentlessly because they're already in trouble. But where he's going to attack is where you decide you're going to serve the Lord. And you say, you know what, I'm turning from that sin. And you say, you know what, I'm going to go in the mission field. And you say, you know, I'm going to go to Bible class. You say, your family is going to walk with Jesus. The moment you do that, guess what's going to happen to you? Just get ready. You're going to get attacked. It's going to be about your character. It's going to be about your walk. It's going to be about your witness. And the sad part is, there's probably going to be some Christians that are going to help attack you. Well, you know, we know how you are. Isn't that great? You know, you're, you're, you're walking with the Lord, and the first thing that happens is your supposed brother or sister in the Lord. Well, no, you're not. Again, don't take up the gift of discouragement. There appears to be a new situation in Corinth. And very simply, uh, it's unexpected. It's not like Paul's like got this long list of things. It appears that he kind of writes this letter while he's being fed the information about the situation in Corinth. And so as he's hearing what's being said to him, he's going, oh, man, I need to write this. And here's this, and oh, don't do that. Can I tell you that very often, that's how ministry goes, People will come to me and they go, well, you know, do you have a plan for this and a plan for that and a doctrine? And they'll want this like 700-page essay of how we're going to handle everything. People are not like that. They don't just wake up and decide to destroy their marriage. There's a very long list of things that happen. And those things happen over a period of time. And normally in the church, you're trying to help them get through the one period of time at a time. And they'd be like, wow, you know, if you'd have just done this. Well, that's fine, Mr. or Mrs. Monday morning quarterback. But you haven't been here for the last three and a half years while we've been walking with that person through their whole life situation. Now all of a sudden they step in and it's like, well, if you'd have just done this. When you're dealing with people, there's one thing I can tell you. There is nothing that works 100% of the time. Nothing. Absolutely nothing works 100% of the time. And I'm talking about the human side of it. God's word, 100% of the time. But the implementation by a human being, whether that be the pastor or the person, the pastor or the person, if there's any flesh involved in it, not one thing's going to work 100% of the time. I've had, I've had couples where I go, you know what, here's your problem. They go, okay, it's over. It's like, nope, we're not going to do that anymore. We see it, we get it, boom, done. And I've had couples that will come back to me 50 times with new ways to do the exact same sin. 
I am serious as a heart attack. It's like, well, I didn't really think that that would actually destroy her. <laughs> you know, they talk to you like it's like it's some kind of different thing. You've got to be patient because each time that person tries that new thing, if you're just done with them after time two, you're like Peter. Well, how many times should I forgive them? Seven. If we implemented that process here in marriage counseling, there'd be nobody married in the church. It's like seven times in one thing. Well, you're all done. Forget it. So he writes to this new offender who apparently is a false teacher, has come from the inside. And he writes at a very specific time with the purpose of comforting them. And I think this is super important because when you think about this, the first offender in the first letter, it was pretty clear the dude was whack, amen? It's incest is the sin. It's like everybody's going, sin. But can I tell you, sometimes people gossiping about pastors, that isn't even viewed as sin. Well, he deserves it. After all, he's a jerk. All of us have issues, amen? All of us do. I always tell people, please do not put me on a pedestal, because however high it is, that's how far I can fall, plus a few feet. Somehow I'll manage to go through the floor. I won't stop at the floor. But this new offender was obviously very close to Paul. And that makes it hurt more. When it's family, when it's people you love that are attacking you, that are coming after your character, that are coming after maybe your family, you know, sometimes we're tempted to think And let me share with you a little bit from the inside. People are tempted to think that pastors don't have any feelings. That somehow we have grown past that. We've become uber holy. And so you could gossip about my children or my wife or say something horrible about us personally. And we're just supposed to go, praise the Lord, brother. (laughs) Hallelujah. You're right. She's the witch. It don't work that way. There's red blood in them veins. And then veins start to stick out. And so Paul's having to deal with this humanness, his flesh. He's going, man, what did I do? How did we get here? And so when you think about what's happening here, and as this story unfolds, I can tell you, ministry is not for the thin-skinned. It is not for the weak. And if you're looking for a job that pays, you know, a great salary and low hours, don't do this. And that's not a complaint, by the way. That's just there's a lot easier ways to make money where you don't have to deal with people slaughtering you all day. Why am I saying that? Because Paul is taking that kind of beating. That's what happened to the apostles. So when it happens to me, or it happens to the other pastors on staff, or any pastor, this is part of the cost of being in ministry. And so you have to count the cost. No one goes to war, Jesus said, without first counting the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, to finish the battle. That battle is going to be difficult. And everybody needs the God of all comfort. 
And that's why that's the focus here in the beginning of this book. The prime function of every pastor ultimately is to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. Amen? Let me say that again. To disturb those who are comfortable and to comfort those who are disturbed. That's basically what pastors do. You see, because if you're comfortable in some area of life where the Bible speaks to it, I'm going to disturb you. My job is actually disturber-in-chief in this church. It's like, I've got to tell them the truth. I tell them the truth. The tr- truth's going to make them mad. They're going to get upset. They're going to write emails. They're going to do all kinds of wonderful things. But it goes with the territory. I've got to count that cost. My job is not to make you comfortable. But when you fall into that place to where you are the disturbed one, you need that comfort, that is also part of what I'm supposed to do. When you're hurting, when there's things going on in your life, you have to have the balance of those two things. You must be able to speak the truth in love. The Apostle Paul did that in the first letter, except they didn't see it as love, and here's why. He called out their sin. Can I tell you that as a pastor, when you call out people's sin, it doesn't exactly make them happy. Everybody's not going, preach it, Pastor Jeff. Because I'm like doing that every day. Hallelujah. Beat me some more. No, that's not what happens. They go, how dare he? And usually what happens, they say, did you talk to my wife? It's the craziest thing. It's like, no, actually the word says that. And that's what happens to Paul. He writes a letter. He gets the word, this is what's going on. So he writes this generic letter to him, and all the church is going, I can't believe you'd say that. It's what happens. There's three things as, as Paul speaks these words of comfort. And, and as you look at what Paul's doing, he loves these people. He doesn't consider it a religious job. He, he's not you know, looking at them like, you know, well, I've got to tell them what they want. I pity the pastor that tells the congregation what they want to hear so that they're comfortable. Because very often what we want to hear is we're fine doing what we're not supposed to do. And if I don't love you, that's what I'm going to do. If I don't love you, I'm going to tell you you're just fine in something that I know God's not okay with. Because that's easy for me. That's a lack of love. Parents, why do you tell your children they cannot have ice cream for all three meals during a day? Because they will die of cardiac arrest by the time they're 12. They're going to eat all that sugar and all that fat. They're going to have no teeth. And they'll be lactose intolerant. It's a bad deal. So you tell them, you don't know, no, that's for dessert. That's a little tiny part of something that you can enjoy. But I need to tell you, you know, the vegetables are necessary. The grains are necessary. The fruit is necessary. A little bit of protein is necessary. You see, your kids generally like to have the things that they like. A lot of the church wants to have the things that they like. 
And so when you tell them, nah, you're a little out of balance there. Matter of fact, you're not supposed to be eating that at all. Ooh. So he says, the God of all comfort. But he begins by saying, blessed be, or blessed be the God who is the God of all comfort. This phrase is only used three times in the entire Bible. In this context. In Ephesians chapter 1, it points to our past. Blessed be the God who chose us in Christ with all spiritual blessings. Peter would write about our future hope. Blessed be the God who is a living hope. And here the Apostle Paul puts it into the present and he said, blessed be the God who is the God of all comfort. We need all three. I need God to take care of the blessings of my past and my future and definitely my present. And so he's praising him for the the present blessings. You see, part of the problem that we have as a church is we think of blessings always and only in the positive sense. That the only blessings we have is if God gives us a bigger house or a new car or more money or you know, good grades or whatever. When sometimes the biggest blessings you'll have is when God removes things from your life. When God takes you out of somewhere. Maybe when God slaps you upside the head because you're going the wrong direction. Can I tell you that's a slapping blessing? That's where God's going, you know what? You're going the wrong way. Boom! Knock some sense into your noodle. That's a present blessing. Don't be looking for just the blessings of what we would call the good things. Look for the blessings of the hard things, the difficult things. And that's actually the context of next week's study. Look for the blessing of trials, suffering. I haven't met anybody who says, you know, Pastor Jeff, can we start a suffering ministry at the church? Very few people are going to go to that ministry, okay? Yeah, we're, this week we're going to be, you know, really inflicting pain on one another mentally and emotionally. You're, you're not going to have many people come to that. But the truth of the matter is you all come to it almost every week, don't you? Because you do suffer. You are going through things. And you need the God of all comfort to touch your life virtually every day. Sometimes every moment of every day. Sometimes every day is a trial. I know people that get up in the morning and it's all they can do to get in the car and go to work. They're like loathing every moment of the drive-in. They get to work, they do their time, they punch the clock, and they can't wait to leave, and the whole thing is like hell on earth. And they need the God of all comfort to be there right with them because if the God of all comfort does not show up, they're not making it. That's the God we meet in this book. The God who in your present state, wherever you are, in whatever state, Paul said, I find myself. I have learned to be content. Whether abased, beat down, or whether I'm abounding in complete abundance, 
He says, the only answer to this is our Father. And to that end, we, we wrap this up tonight. Well, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? I know who my daddy is. And while I don't think it's appropriate that we always call Father God Daddy, there's a reason he's known as Abba Father. It means Daddy. It's a term of endearment. And that God that loves you enough to chastise you, that's Daddy. That God that gives you good things when you deserve bad things, that's Daddy. That God that loves you through those tough times and knows that you're crying in your room, that's daddy. That's our daddy. That's what daddies do. It's one of those tender times in my own personal life has been when my sons have needed something or they've gone through something and there is no one but mom and I that can meet that need. Because no one else understands them the way we do. And you put your arm around them, and it is only you that can make that better. That's the way the Lord wants to be in your life. That's what God wants to do with you. He wants to be your daddy. He wants you to talk to him, and cry out to him, and walk with him. Why? Because he is the daddy of mercy. He's the father. He's the originator of mercy. Because let's be honest. Grace being on one side, receiving what you have not earned. Mercy on the other side is you not getting what you have earned. When God withholds punishment, when God does good to us, when we should be judged... He's being merciful. He's acting on his compassion. That's what dads do. That's what moms do. That's how parents who love their children act. That's what God does for you. He looks at you, he looks at me, and he sees his precious kids. And so he says to us, look, I want to take care of that (laughs) boo-boo. That spiritual boo-boo, amen? Isn't that the weirdest things? You moms can open a can of Band-Aids and, and there can be the blood-curdling scream that is from the abyss that's come from your child and all you got to do is put a Band-Aid. It hasn't fixed a thing. Does nothing better. It hurts exactly the same. Matter of fact, the Band-Aid pulling off the hair is going to make it worse. But just the fact that you show care and compassion, that you act on the fact that you love your children, all of a sudden they're like, okay, can I go play now? That's dad. That's what dads do. That's what your heavenly father does. He knows where you hurt. He knows what's going on in the depths of your soul tonight. And you know what? He loves you so much that even if you've been crying wolf, because every once in a while our kids do that, right? They figured out that if they just say the right things and act the right way that mom mom or dad will come and rescue them. 
Sometimes there isn't even a problem. You know, I've come to, to, to understand this from being so long as a camp director. Sometimes kids just want to be touched by their father. Some of, those heart, some of the most heart-wrenching times I've ever had in my ministry experience have been as a camp director when you have kids where the family's just a wreck. It, it, the family's blown apart. It's torn to bits. And maybe mom or dad sent that child to the camp and you get towards that last day and they're going to have to go home. And, and, and that parent that sent them is going to come pick them up but they're not going to take them home. And that parent wraps their arms around that child. And there's a type of sobbing that I cannot even describe to you. He's like, don't let me go. I don't want to go back to what it was. I, I can't endure another day of this. Please don't take your hands off of me. Can I go home with you? is what I've heard so many times. Can I tell you that's exactly what Abba Father wants to do with you? He actually wants to put his arms around you and one day take you home. But in the meantime, you're going to have some boo-boos. You're going to get some bumps and bruises. You're going to have to go some places that you don't want to go. You're going to have to endure some things that you don't want to endure. You're going to have experiences that you would rather not have. And not every day is going to be a day filled with roses and rainbows. You're going to have some tough times. The answer to that is our God, who's blessed to be the God of all comfort. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray together. Father, we thank you that in fact this is who you are. Your Abba Father, who is sincere, who is our helper that comes alongside, our paraclete, our comforter. You're the one who knows how to comfort us in every trial. And so Lord, as we commit our way unto you, as we look to you in those moments when things are tough, when things are hard, when we've reached that place in our lives to where we don't know where to go, we know who to run to, and that is you. We thank you that you're the father of mercy. The Lord, though we deserve something entirely different than your grace, we receive your forgiveness and your grace. Lord, you shower us with mercy and blessings. It actually was birthed from you. And so, Father, we thank you for your great love for us and your care for us. And we pray, Lord, that as we walk through the day, as we journey through life, that you would bring us that comfort we need. Lord, some days are tough and we admit that to you. Some days seem abnormally long and we admit that to you. Lord, there are lacks in our lives and we'd love to have them met and we commit that to you. Lord, some of our relationships are broken. 
seemingly irreconcilable and we commit those to you. Father, some tonight are hurting in places they can't even speak of and we commit that to you. And we ask God of all comfort that you would comfort your people. That you'd speak to us. Nurture us, Lord. We're weak. We're needy. There's places in our lives that hurt. We commit those to you. Thank you for comforting us. Thank you for blessing us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.